This is the PPT with AID podcast. I'm Andrew Dombeck, your host and owner of AID Performance Physical Therapy. And today I have the, the I'm, I'm so excited to have this guest. Um, this man has uh, taught me how to do some dry needling that has been very successful in my PT practice. And he's got so many accomplishments that I don't want to list them. I want, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, your accomplishments, Jan Dommerholt? <laughs> Where do I begin, I would say? Um, well, my first accomplishment, I think, was to be very lucky that I ran into Janet Travell, a former White House physician to Kennedy and later Johnson after Kennedy was assassinated. And in the 80s, late 80s, 1989 to be exact, she did a workshop in Washington, D.C. at a hospital. I worked adjacent to that hospital and like, oh. I never heard of Travel. That should be interesting. Three and a half hours later, she was done with her workshop and like, oh shit, I still have all my patients to take care of for the day in the hospital. Uh, but that was really one of the best things I've ever done, I think, just to take a break in the middle of a busy hospital day and just attend the workshop and sit back and relax and be fascinated. Um, at that time, Travel was 88 years old. And I was like, who is this little lady who tells everyone they've been doing it wrong all these years and she had she had asked for a few patients um, with intractable pain and it was a little bit in retrospect a little bit like a hallelujah healing session at the mall in dc uh, because all these people were significantly better now she did not do dry needling travel actually never did dry needling in her whole life but these people were so much better so i after i saw my patients got home started looking at um, so what really happened, Do, have I heard of this person? And I actually brought my book back, from, uh, opened up my books from the, from the physical therapy training in the Netherlands, I, where I graduated. There was one little paragraph about Travel, and I even found some notes that I had written. I had no recollection of doing any of that, to be honest. But So a few days later, I called her, I was using the phone book, we used to have phone books, remember? They <laughs> called books with lots of names and numbers in it, the street sometimes. And um, she invited me to her house to talk about it. I said, how can I learn what you showed? And she said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow afternoon around 3 o'clock? She invited me for tea and cookies at her house, and that was probably the best tea and cookies I've had. Uh, I don't remember the tea and cookies. <laughs> instead of a, a slowly growing cascades of events that eventually led me to really travel all over the world teaching courses and speaking at conferences. Um, I got really into publishing articles and book chapters and, and it kind of took off by, very much to my surprise to be honest, I had no idea that tea cookies would lead to that. But it's been, it's been a fun journey and it's, I'm still going full strong and Hopefully this COVID thing is under control anytime soon and we can pick up where we left off because of course my travel came to a screeching halt last year like everyone else's, but yeah, that's what kind of what happened. So for our audience probably don't know who, you know, other than the physical therapy crowd, the lay person may not know who Janet Travell and, and mm -hmm. Simmons were, but they wrote this book on um, trigger points or, or uh, referred pain points where if anyone, if you ever grabbed your upper trap and you squeezed it and you had a pain radiating up into your head, um, 
Janet Trevallon Simmons, they wrote this book and they mapped the entire body at where, you know, if you found the trigger point there, where would the radiation go for the pain? Mm -hmm. um, and you've taken that information and then how did dry needling come from, come from that part? Well, Travell probably is best known in the general world as being one of the White House physicians. Um, she originally was a, a cardiologist and pharmacologist, and in, uh, in the 30s in New York, uh, which is rather unusual. There were really not many female physicians at that time who you know, had the chance to become physicians. In the 40s, she slowly switched more to musculoskeletal medicine, like dealing with muscles and pain. She was introduced to referred pain by some articles in the late 30s, written by a British rheumatologist. And she initially was interested because of her cardiac background as being a cardiologist. And she said, like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if that always happens to other muscles. And she really started exploring the referred pain part. Now we all know referred pain. We've all heard stories that when people, men, especially men, have a heart attack, they tend to have pain in their left arm. That's an example of an organ referring pain somewhere else. Travell really took that a lot further and confirmed these articles, the finding of these articles, that every muscle, in fact, every tissue in the body, but she really focused on muscles, can cause pain somewhere else. So. I always tell people when they take our courses in dry needling, they say, you know, if you learned only one thing, that pain is not always, almost very rarely, where patients describe. The origin of the pain, the source of the pain, is usually not where patients describe the pain. Many people, let's say, for example, the tennis elbow. Yeah, it could be an example I often give. Uh, you go to driving around, your purse or your backpack or whatever is on the back seat. You reach back while you're waiting for the traffic light. You, you hurt your shoulder a little bit. Like, oh, that wasn't smart. You have done that. You take whatever you want out of your backpack or purse, whatever it is. And four or five days later, you got pain in your elbow. But nothing really happened in your elbow. You just have pain in your elbow. It's like you go to the doctor or physical therapist or chiropractor. Oh, you have tennis elbow. And you're like, where the what would I get tennis elbow from? Um, Many, many times you tweak something in your shoulder, your, sh your shoulder muscles, particularly muscles in your, over your shoulder blade, called the infraspinatus muscle, often going to a little bit of a contraction, but what we call tarred bands or contractures. And these tarred bands give pain somewhere else, usually down the arms or down the body. Um, so that that's the only thing you learn in a course, you're already a better clinician because many, many phys uh, physical therapists, and I really uh, that's what I'd like to talk about the most, but I think it's rampant in, in the whole field of medicine. Um, it, it's People go to the elbow and treat the elbow forever. And even if they don't really find much, it has to be tennis elbow, so I need to treat the, the elbow. And, but that would be the same thing if, if I ever would have a heart attack. But thank goodness I've never had one. But when I go to the hospital, I said, my arm is killing me. And the doctor would say, oh, that's because you have a tennis elbow. <laughs> but it's exactly the same thing. If you think about it, then, then you'd be really devastated because in the meantime, you're dying of a heart attack. Now, clearly, when people have a heart attack, that's quite obvious. And with musculoskeletal referred pain, it's usually not so obvious till you recognize these patterns because they're quite consistent. They're not 
totally written in stone, but they're quite consistent. So Travel's main thing to, to medicine, I think, is alerting people and documenting the most common pain patterns that we see in people. Now, again, there's lots of variations. There's no two people the same. Um, so treating the elbow in this case, in both cases, would be useless. That's not going to resolve the problem. You need to find out what is the original source of the pain. Where does it come from? In this case, from the shoulder, in the heart attack, from the heart, or any structures around the arteries, maybe, whatever. That, I think, is a key component. If people get that, and the dry needling, to me, as far as teaching dry needling, really is not that difficult. Uh, people make a lot of fuss about dry needling, especially in, in the regulating uh, state boards of physical therapy. Um, often go overboard with trying to regulate dry needling for no reason that I can think of. Uh, so being here in Virginia, it's actually really quite lovely that the Virginia Board of Physical Therapy, in my opinion, took the lead in how that should be done. They basically said, if you're a physical therapist and you want to do dry needling, you need to show that you're competent, that you've taken the proper education, a education we approve of, and that's it. Uh, the state I live, right next door, across the Potomac Ocean, uh, Maryland, um, has so many regulations about dry needling that makes it, for many people, impossible to learn because it's, it's so over-regulated. And frankly, there are no good reasons for that. Dry needling has been shown in many studies now to be extremely safe. I, I was part of a study myself where we uh, looked at almost 8,000 treatments in physical therapy. And the risk of something really going bad, like a significant adverse event, was less than 0.04%. Wow. That is nothing. Your risk of gastrointestinal bleeding with taking ibuprofen is about 18% if you take a pill every day. And people don't hesitate doing that. People never think about, it. oh my gosh, I get gastrointestinal bleeding, although it is a leading source of, of death in hospitals. But people are quite okay with that. So why do we need to regulate something that has a potential side effect for 0.04% of the cases, that it's, it, to me it's mind-boggling. So I, I congratulate Virginia on coming up with, in my opinion, the best regulations for dry needling. We still need to have a prescription, I think, from a doctor to perform it. Yeah, in Virginia you do have that, but that's really a different problem. You need that for lots of different things, and not just for dry needling. So. But I tell you, when I first took your class for the first time, probably six or seven years ago, mm -hmm none of the doctors really knew what dry needling was and there was a lot of education on my part sure. trying to you know send doctors journal articles because for your class i probably read 50 to 80 journal articles in order um you know for our certification and um so now it's almost commonplace that it's rare that you don't see um especially the orthopedic surgeons not checking off the dry needling it's just a tool in the toolbox that we have it, another form of what we call instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization. Um, now, I know some of the uh, issues that have also arisen that have kind of been um, subsided recently is uh, between the acupuncturist and the dry needling. The acupuncturists were trying to determine that, you know, we as physical therapists are not have enough training to do dry needling, and I think recently there was a court case that said that another another occupation cannot dictate what another occupation is able to can and do but one of the questions that we often get is you know what is the difference between acupuncture and dry needling 
<laughs> a few comments on that, if you don't mind. No. <laughs> I wish I could share your optimism that the battles between acupuncturists and physical therapists are over, because that's really not the case. It's okay in Virginia. Uh, Virginia acupuncturists did raise a lot of concerns about public health issues is the main issue. Um, but last year the governor did approve the new regulations in Virginia and because of most of the arguments did not hold water, they were, they were not based on fact. Um, that's Virginia, but not that long ago, 2018, I spent a week in Florida uh, in depositions and court cases. I was in the administrative court there uh, because a group of acupuncturists, acupuncture society, had sued the physical therapy board for allowing dry needling, and it actually went to court. So I was an expert witness for the physical therapy association of uh, of, the, of Florida, and it was not pretty at times. It was. Again, most of the arguments expected, all the arguments of the acupuncturists were dismissed by the judge, so that was good news. Um, North Carolina had something similar where the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of dry kneeling and dismissed the concerns of acupuncturists. But New Jersey, people can't, physical therapists can't do dry kneeling anymore. They used to for eight years and then through acupuncture intervention, the Attorney General said, oh, that's not in your scope, you can't do that. Um, it's sitting on the floor in the Senate, or it's been stopped to go to the Senate. There's an overwhelming majority of uh, legislators in the, the House and, uh, and Senate in New Jersey who believe this should be okay, but the Senate Chairman has refused to bring it to the table for, for voting for two years already. Um, I understand the gentleman just passed away, so sad for him, but maybe good for, <laughs> for physical therapy in New Jersey. I don't, I don't know where it will go. Uh, interesting, at the same time in New Jersey, all physical therapists have been approved to do COVID vaccinations. So in New Jersey, physical therapists can do injections, but they can't use dry needling, which is kind of funny and kind of weird. But there's still quite a few states where dry needling is not within the scope of physical therapy. New York, California, Oregon, uh, Washington State, uh, and there's several others. Um, plus a whole lot of states where it's kind of a gray area still. Again, Virginia is very clear now. This is what you can do it, but you need to be competent. And there's no mention of how many hours you have to study because that's all arbitrary. That really doesn't mean much. You can spend 200 hours with a really bad course, or you can 10 hours with the best course ever. So the hours doesn't make any sense to me. That's what most states resort to, but it doesn't make sense. So I wouldn't say those battles are over. I think there's still very much going on. Um, I think eventually they'll fade away. I have no doubt that that will happen. I mean, that, uh, because the arguments don't add up. The arguments that physical therapists would pose a public health risk, which is what state boards is the main concern, is protecting the public. Uh, there is just no basis for it. I mean, um, our study of almost of 7,629 treatments was done in Ireland, where, where I used to teach lots of courses. Um, last year, in 2020, a bigger study came out using the same design as ours, with over 20,000 treatments here in the United States, and that showed basically the same thing. There were actually really no significant adverse events with that many treatments. 
Um, in my best estimate, there are probably right now 30, 40,000 physical therapists in the States who use dry needling. Now, in a really conservative estimate, let's say it's 40,000. Let's say they do five times a day, they use dry needling on a busy caseload, which is probably conservative. That would be right there, 200,000 treatments a day. Take that times five, you have a million treatments a day just in the United States. Yeah, That's a serum where a physical therapist only works 40, hour, 40 weeks a year, which we know is not true. But like, you know, with federal holidays, vacation, sickness, let's say it comes down to 40 weeks. That's 40 million treatments a year just in the U.S. Times five, because I'm going there, that's an awful lot of treatments. The largest malpractice insurance in the United States, endorsed by the professional organization, had 34 cases in a five-year period. So 34 cases where people filed a formal complaint against the physical therapist for dry needling or whatever happened during the dry needling session, out of those hundreds of millions of treatments, that alone tells you that dry needling is super safe. Yeah, my, my rates didn't go up because of that. So the, the, the insurance companies look at this very carefully. And uh, in Florida, people tried to push that, even as recent as last year. Uh, I wrote a blog about, it's called Mr. Bibby Strikes Again. Mr. Bibby was the uh, main representative of the Florida Acupuncture Club. And last year, he tried to convince the legislature by a newspaper article to which I responded in a, via a blog. He brought up that same thing. It's like, oh, it's a big concern. And it's like, the fact is there were 34. Yes, they keep track of it because it is an invasive procedure. You put a needle in someone. But if you're properly trained and, and just from the physical therapy education we, we all have, just to be able to practice physical therapy, 86% of what you need to know to do dry needling safely, you already know from, from your physical therapy training. And, and that's been studied by an independent research company. So not a self-serving physical therapy thing, but independent research company, they came up with those numbers. So you're already, 86% of the, the work is already done by, just by the fact that you have a doctor in physical therapy. So, so last part of your question, what's the difference between acupuncture and dry needling? Well, that's a great question, but I think it has a lot to do with the professions at large. I mean, dry needling is just a small part of what physical therapists do. Uh, acupuncturists who do dry needling, it's only a small part of what they do. But I think we have to be very careful that a lot of physical therapists said, oh, dry needling is Western medicine and acupuncture is Eastern medicine, and it's, it's therefore it's not really acupuncture. You can't really say that because dry needling is definitely within the scope of acupuncture. So you can never say dry needling is not acupuncture. You, you, that's, when it's performed by an acupuncturist, it's acupuncture. When it's performed by a dentist, I've treated, trained many dentists, it's dentistry. I teach a course in canine dry needling. When it, veterinarians do it, it's veterinary medicine, etc., etc. You get the drift. Um, that's the same with exercise. We could say, oh, exercise is physical therapy, but exercise is also chiropractic, and exercise is also even acupuncture. Acupuncture gives people exercises and maybe different. So the difference between the disciplines is like what's at the table, not the technique. So I think it's fine. Every discipline needs to figure out what's in the scope of practice and what's not. 
I think other disciplines need to back off in determining, oh, that's not in scope, that's in mine, because how would I know what acupuncturists really do? Why would I even have an opinion on that? Why would that matter to me? So I think we need to be a little bit more tolerant to each other that, okay, scope of, overlap in scope of practice is actually essential for a functional healthcare system. If you don't have an overlap in scope, the world doesn't really function. You need to have an overlap in scope. So, yeah, there are differences. But the differences are more in the professional's philosophies and approach when you and I as physical therapists do an examination of a patient to determine is dry needling appropriate and where should you do that, it's probably not the same evaluation as an acupuncturist does. So when an acupuncturist does their evaluation, as a rule I think it's probably a little different, but some acupuncturists it's very, very similar.